Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition Diva Podcast. I'm your host, Monica Reinagel, and today we're talking about nuts and a potential concern that many of you have written to ask me about. And then I have a Nutrition Diva bonus for you, a look at some of the most popular meal planning apps and what they can do to help you improve your nutrition. So be sure to stick around for that at the end of the podcast. Nuts are generally thought of as healthy choices. They are somewhat high in calories due to their relatively high fat content, but these aren't just empty calories. Along with those healthy, unsaturated fats, you're also getting fiber and protein, which help keep you from getting hungry. And that could be why dieters who include nuts in their meal plans lose more weight and report feeling less hungry. And in general, people who eat nuts on a regular basis are more likely to maintain a healthy weight, despite those calories. Nuts are also rich in vitamin E, which is good for your skin, heart, and brain. They contain phytosterols, natural plant compounds that help to regulate your cholesterol levels. And regular nut consumption is linked with a reduced risk of heart disease and other diseases. So far, the news is all good. But several of you have written to ask me about aspergillus or aflatoxin in nuts and whether this is something that we need to worry about. I can tell you that some of the scariest things you may have encountered on the internet are probably exaggerated or taken out of context. Nonetheless, these are not imaginary concerns. First, let's take a minute to understand exactly what these compounds are and where we're likely to encounter them. Aspergillus is a type of fungus that's found in the soil, and it can cause disease in certain food crops, especially legumes, grains, and tree nuts. An aspergillus infection can weaken the plants enough that it reduces crop yield, and that's obviously a concern for the farmers. But even when crop yields are affected only minimally, the aspergillus fungus continues to be a problem after the crops are harvested. It can cause grains or nuts to rot in storage, leading to more losses for farmers or distributors. But the main concern in terms of human health is that aspergillus produces potentially harmful compounds called mycotoxins. In particular, we're concerned about a group of mycotoxins called aflatoxins. These are known to be carcinogenic. Chronic aflatoxin exposure can lead to liver damage or liver cancer, especially in individuals with pre-existing conditions, such as hepatitis B infection. Breathing in the spores of the aspergillus fungus can also cause lung irritation or damage, again, especially in individuals with pre-existing lung disease, such as tuberculosis or COPD. And that's why most developed nations have very stringent monitoring for aspergillus and aflatoxin in foods. Products that are most likely to be infected, such as peanuts or tree nuts, are routinely screened. And if those aspergillus or aflatoxin levels are above a certain very low threshold, the foods cannot be distributed. Now, this has obviously motivated growers to develop growing and handling practices that reduce the presence of aspergillus and aflatoxin in their food and their feed crops. And these efforts have been very successful. According to the World Health Organization, control strategies have mostly eliminated harmful exposures in developed countries. Unfortunately, those living in developing nations may still be exposed to harmful levels of contamination, especially those in tropical regions where these crops may also serve as a dietary staple. 
The WHO says that food insufficiency and a lack of diversity substantially contribute to the susceptibility of individuals and communities to aflatoxins. Now, when you consider that hepatitis B and tuberculosis are also much more common in developing countries, you can see that aflatoxins present a real public health concern in these developing nations. The World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control are working hard on a number of initiatives to combat the problem, everything from public information campaigns to developing aspergillus-resistant strains of these crops to enhanced screening protocols. But the problem is not yet solved. So what, if anything, do you need to do to protect yourself against aflatoxin exposure? If you live in one of these developing nations, you can reduce your potential exposure by limiting your consumption of peanuts and other ground nuts, corn and cottonseed oil, commodities that are the most likely to be infected. Unless, of course, you know that they have been screened. If you don't live in a developing nation, aflatoxin exposure is probably not something you need to be too concerned about, not only because of better screening and detection, but because these foods are less likely to be your primary source of calories. And perhaps this is just one more argument for a reasonably varied diet. Not only does it ensure that you're getting a broader array of nutrients, but it reduces the chances that you'll be overexposed to a potentially harmful substance. Tuna, for example, is a terrific source of protein, but eating tuna every single day could expose you to excessive amounts of mercury. Broccoli, super nutritious vegetable, but if this were the only vegetable in your diet, you'd be missing a lot of key nutrients. And remember, it's also possible to overdo a good thing. Brazil nuts, for example, are very high in the antioxidant selenium, so high, in fact, that eating too many Brazil nuts can actually cause selenium overload. So try to get your protein from a variety of sources. Mix up those vegetable choices. Alternate between different nuts or grains. You get the idea. But if you don't, there's more about that in my episode, How Important is a Varied Diet? Now, on the other hand, when it comes to less nutritious foods like snacks and treats, having too much variety can lead you to overeat. You can play this variety card to your advantage. If you have lots of kinds of vegetables on hand, you're likely to eat more vegetables. But if you only keep one type of chip or cookie in the house at any given time, it may help you eat less of that stuff. We're going to switch gears in a moment and talk about meal planning, but you'll find a transcript of today's discussion about nuts and aflatoxins, including links to the research that I mentioned at nutritiondiva.quickanddirtytips.com. And if you have a nutrition worry or question that you'd like me to talk about in a future episode, call the Nutrition Diva listener line at 443-961-6206 and leave me a message. I have a Nutrition Diva Extra for you this week. I'm talking with Dina Gershkovich about meal planning and, in particular, meal planning apps. Now, Dina is studying both nutrition and journalism at the University of Maryland at College Park, and she's already a very accomplished writer. She's written a couple of really wonderful guest articles for me on my blog at nutritionovereasy.com. 
And most recently, she spent a couple of weeks test driving some of the most popular meal planning apps. And she wrote up her findings and her recommendations in an article for my blog. And if you want to check that out, you'll find it over at nutritionovereasy.com. But I thought it would be fun to have Dina on the podcast today just to talk a little bit about the backstory of her story on meal planning apps. So welcome to the podcast, Dina. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So first, I want you to just clarify for us the difference between a meal planning app and a diet tracker. They sound like they might be close to the same things. What's the difference? Yeah, yeah. They definitely sound very similar to each other. Um, But the way I would identify a meal planning app is something that puts the focus more on helping you create a balanced and healthy meal in the most efficient way for you. So the emphasis with a meal planning app really is on improving your nutrition in a way that's most convenient for you and most accessible for you. And um, given your unique food preferences and tastes, it allows you to craft meals and organize food lists and all of that stuff that goes into planning what you actually put into your body in a way that's most realistic and achievable given your schedule and your needs. Versus on a diet tracker, I find that the emphasis is more on restriction and on weight loss. Um, Additionally, diet trackers tend to be judgmental and can often lead people to have unhealthy relationships with food. So by focusing too much on, you know, what the skill says, which is what many diet trackers encourage, it's very easy to lose sight of what it actually means to be healthy and how to get there. And I think that meal planning apps specifically allow you to focus more on how you craft your meals and how you make your food rather than what the number on the scale says. You know, it strikes me that one of the other big differences is that meal planning apps kind of by definition are looking into the future. You're you're planning for the future, whereas a diet tracker might be sort of in the moment or after the fact. And I know I find uh, with the people that I work with that we often, and myself, we often make much better choices for our future selves than we do for our present selves. Definitely. You know, the thing with meal planning apps is that they really allow you to plan accordingly as to how you're going to fit nutrition into your daily life. And, you know, we're all busy and we all have a lot of things to do. Um, And it kind of takes more of a forward approach rather than a look back approach and allows you to really um, plan your week and plan your meals in a way that's best for you and in a way that you'll be proud of. You know, I know that for the people that I work with on improving their nutrition or their eating habits or weight loss, they frequently will tell me that, when they do some meal planning, it makes a huge difference in how their day unfolds, how their week unfolds, maybe in the ability to make progress towards their goal. But at the same time, it often seems like this process feels overwhelming or intimidating or um, otherwise unapproachable. There's a lot of stress attached to it. Why do you think that people today find meal planning so stressful? I mean, what do you think has changed from the days that our parents or our grandparents were planning meals for their families without apps? I think that now, you know, in addition to many of us living such incredibly busy lives and, you know, always having things to do throughout the day, um, I think the rise of social media and specifically Instagram has created this image of meal prep to be this very complicated and complex thing. You know, you have to have the perfect containers and everything needs to be measured out perfectly. And it creates this pressure for people to kind of match up to that. So I think that this makes meal planning seem like something that's very complicated and really like almost unachievable or unrealistic and intimidating for some people when really it could just be very simple. 
Um, and the truth is really that the people who are posting those quote unquote perfect containers with meals in them are generally people um, who are health and nutrition experts and, you know, meal prep is usually a big part of their career. So they have time, those people, and I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying part of their career probably is focused on taking those pictures and creating those really nice containers and everything to look all nice and measured out like that. But in real life, meal prep doesn't have to be like that. It could just be something that's, you know, very simple. And it doesn't even have to be making all of the meal at once. It could just be making parts of the meal and then assembling it later on in the week or at a different time that's more convenient for you. So it, you've spent all this time looking at these meal planning apps. And I'm curious, do you feel like they play into that pressure to make things very elaborate or gourmet? Or do they actually make this feel simpler and more approachable? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, I definitely think that they make things more approachable because at least the ones that I reviewed, specifically the AnyList app, lets you make lists with your like your recipes and things that you are interested in making. So it's very individualized, these apps, which I think is good because whether you have a lot of time to meal prep or not so much time to meal prep, the apps can work with you to meet you where you're at and to help you um, make nutritious meals in a way that's best and easiest for you. So if you want to cook really fancy things, they can help you do that. But if you want to keep it really simple, it can also be helpful for those kinds of cooks. Yes, exactly. So in your opinion, what did you find to be the, the features or the benefits of these apps that were the most useful? I think that having a meal planning app and planning to make sure that the easiest option is the healthy option really sets you up for nutritional success. It's a really good way to stay organized and keep track of what you have and what you need to buy um, to make sure that, you know, you don't have to do that dreaded second trip to the grocery store after you came back and then realize you have to go later on in the week to get that thing that you forgot. So I think meal planning apps definitely can help you stay organized in that way um, and just make sure that you're putting the best food into your body that you can. So for all the things that meal planning apps can help us with, maybe helping keep our shopping lists organized, uh, expanding our repertoire, helping us add a little bit more variety or use up extra ingredients, or as you say, plan for nutritional success, what kinds of challenges are meal planning apps not going to help with? So definitely for meal planning, um, you have to be very motivated. And that's something that has to come from you. But that being said, meal planning can meal planning apps rather can definitely make that easier and can make you more motivated. Because I think sometimes people see meal prep as this really difficult thing and it does involve a lot of planning and foresight. But I think that the apps can help you with that in that way. Another thing that you have to keep in mind with meal prep is that you have to make sure that you actually have the physical space and the equipment to meal prep. You know, you have the kitchen and you have bowls and all the cooking utensils that you need to make whatever foods that you're interested in making. And also having time to cook and making sure that you are able to actually fit meal prep into your schedule. But providing that you have a sincere desire to eat better and to plan your meals and you've got some time and some space to work with, it sounds like these meal planning apps can really offer a leg up. And most of them, at least to start, are completely free. I know some of them have some premium features, but you can get started on with most of these apps uh, for, for no cost at all. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. All of the ones that I mentioned in my article have useful features available for free. Some of them have additional features where you know you can pay if you really like the app and you want some of those additional features. But the ones that I listed in my article, the free versions are definitely worthwhile. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us and your hard work on this article. And if you want to see Dina's article and read in more detail about the six apps that she reviewed and the ones that she recommends, you'll find her post on my blog at nutritionovereasy.com, where there's also a link to Dina's blog if you want to follow some of her other writing. And Dina, we hope to have you again on the podcast or on the blog, but thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. The Nutrition Diva podcast is written and researched by me, Monica Reinagel, edited by Beata Santora, produced by Nathan Sems, with invaluable support from Morgan Ratner, Michelle Margulis, Emily Miller, and our amazing director, Kathy Doyle. But the person that makes it all possible for us to do what we do is you, the listener. So thanks for listening, and thanks for telling your friends about the podcast. Have a great week, and remember to eat something good for me. 